0: Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from January 2016, Dr. Irene Gobriel and Dr. Matthew Davids discuss the latest treatment advances and research in multiple myeloma, leukemia, and other blood cancers. They also bring news and updates from the 2015 American Society of Hematology annual meeting held in December 2015. Dr. Gobriel is a medical oncologist with Dana-Farber's Hematologic Oncology Treatment Center and the director of the Michelle and Stephen Kirsch Laboratory. Dr. Davids is a medical oncologist with Dana-Farber's Hematologic Oncology Treatment Center and has an active translational research program in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Teresa Herbert from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins them for the conversation.
1: Dr. Davids and Dr. Gobriel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to see you. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Really appreciate making the time. So we thought we'd just start right off with the news coming out of the American Society of Hematology, so also known for our viewers as ASH for the annual meeting last month. So I thought we could just really top line talk about some of the exciting things that excited each of you at the meeting. So Dr. Davids, do you want to just kick us off on maybe what you found most impressive there?
2: Sure, so just sort of at a a high level, I think this was a very exciting meeting for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, A lot of really groundbreaking work that was presented both on the clinical side and on the basic science side. Uh, I think some of the clinical abstracts were the real highlights for me. Uh, there was a real practice-changing abstract that looked at the abrutinib drug, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, uh, and it looked at it in the frontline setting. So the drug is only approved right now for relapsed refractory CLL, and so we saw some great data in the frontline setting. Uh, we also saw some exciting targeted agents like venetoclax, which we'll talk more about um, in a couple of different studies, uh, and another new BTK inhibitor called ACP196, which also looks very promising. So a lot of very exciting results at the meeting.
3: Excellent. Dr. Gobra, how about for you? Same again. Myeloma was a very exciting time in ash this year, especially that we had three drugs approved just before we went to ash. So it was an amazing time to get three drugs approved back to back in myeloma. Two of them are monoclonal antibodies, and I'm sure we'll talk about them mm-hmm. more, elutuzumab, and daratumumab and then another oral proteasome inhibitor. I think as far as clinical trials, I think one of the major uh, ones that will change practice for us was uh, the IFM-DFCI study, but this was the IFM part, which is the French study, and it showed that indeed, Transplant is important in progression-free survival in multiple myeloma, so that was a groundbreaking, or at least a new thing in the era of novel agents, that transplant still plays an important part. As far as basic science, I think genomics, again, a lot of data on targeted sequencing, as well as whole exome sequencing, trying to truly decipher what's going on in the myeloma genomics. Awesome. It, It was a pretty exciting meeting.
1: Um, so, Dr. Davids, let's talk a little bit about chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So there are three new therapies that have been approved in about the last two years. So can you talk just generally about how these new therapies, how they affect patients now, what they mean for these patients, and how is this kind of this uh, time that we're in now different than where we were a couple years ago?
2: Sure. So, I mean, the the field has really been turned on its head in the last five years. Uh, Five years ago, all we had was chemoimmunotherapy, uh, which was certainly very effective at putting the disease into remission, but it came with a cost, uh, significant side effects for patients. And so there's been a, a large impetus to develop novel targeted therapies for patients with CLL, and that's really starting to pay off now in the last few years. And as you mentioned, in the last two years, we've had three new drugs FDA approved. Uh, The first was a monoclonal antibody called obinutuzumab, uh, which is similar to the rituximab antibody that's been around for a while, but it's actually a much more potent antibody in CLL specifically. Uh, It doesn't rely on the other immune cells as much as rituximab does, and in CLL, the other immune cells don't function as well. So there's a strong scientific rationale for using obinutuzumab in CLL patients, and based on a large phase three study, it seems to have a progression-free survival benefit over the rituximab antibody. So that's been a very nice option, especially for older patients who don't tolerate the chemotherapy as well. Uh, then, the other two major innovations have been the kinase inhibitor drugs, ibrutinib first and then idelalisib. Ibrutinib is an oral BTK inhibitor, Bruton's tyrosine kinase, which is very important for the functioning of the B cell, and idelalisib is a PI3 kinase uh, inhibitor, as it's called, and it targets the PI3 kinase only in the lymphocytes, so it's very selective. PI3 kinase is, a, is an enzyme that's in lots of cells in the body, but idelalisib really targets it within the lymphocytes, lymphocytes and that actually leads to fewer side effects. Both of these drugs have outstanding efficacy and they're much better tolerated than chemotherapy. Uh, So they've both been approved now in the relapsed and refractory setting, uh, and it's really transformed how we treat patients. So we still do use chemotherapy for the initial therapy of CLL, Uh, But now that we have these drugs, we typically don't use it in the later lines of therapy. Mm -hmm. And that was a major problem before because patients would get more and more side effects and the the treatments would be less and less effective in in later lines of therapy. So now we have these two great drugs uh, that are both uh, well-tolerated. They each have their own potential side effects, and we'll kind of get to that a little bit later Mm -hmm. when we talk about some of the next generation molecules, which are also exciting. Uh, But it's really been a huge innovation in CLL.
1: Excellent. Dr. Gobriel, we briefly touched on the three drugs that were recently approved for multiple myeloma. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with multiple myeloma and what
3: these new drug options mean for patients? Yeah, absolutely. So for many years, we've been um, envious of lymphoma with their R-CHOP chemotherapy, with their Rituxin combination Uh, with other agents, which is that monochloral antibody that works on the lymphoma cells, yet we did not have anything for myeloma. So now finally, we have two antibodies approved for myeloma. They work in very different ways, and it's good to have options for our patients. Ilutuzumab was approved in combination with lenalidomide, which is one of the drugs that we use all the time for myeloma, or it's called Revlimid. Um, And that combination improves significantly compared to if you give patients Revlimid and steroids alone. So again, an excellent combination for our patients, very well tolerated, minimal side effects. Then there is another superstar too, Deratumumab, and that monoclonal antibody was approved as a single agent. You can use it even if you've had prior bortezomib or prior proteasome inhibitors and prior immunomodulators. So even if the patients had other therapies and the therapy failed them, we still can use this monoclonal antibody. We know now from trials ongoing that you can also use it in combination with other agents. So again, it opens up for us using it in multiple areas. And then the third one, which is an oral proteasome inhibitor. So we've had bortezomib or Velcade, and we've had carfilzomib. And both of them are wonderful drugs. They're proteasome inhibitors, but they're IV. And our patients had to come to the clinic twice a week most of the time, sometimes once a week, to come and get therapy. And now we know that we can use this oral agent and give us the same effective effectiveness in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So it's truly a, an amazing time. We're already using them now, FDA approved. Uh, our patients uh, are excited about it, and we're seeing great responses.
1: That's fantastic. Um, I recall at the meeting, Dr. Paul Richardson presented a number of... Um, led a number of abstracts that talked about some of these different co- these therapies that you just touched on in combination, so those are some of the current clinical trials that are happening in multiple myeloma. So can you talk a little bit about what is kind of in the pipeline for the clinical trials for multiple myeloma moving ahead?
3: Yeah, absolutely, so as we know, any of the agents that we use now in the relapsed refractory setting, after third line or fourth line, we start bringing them earlier on, and the question would be, can you use four drug regimens instead of three? Can we improve on the responses we have right now? Instead of having three drug regimen, which is the standard of care followed by transplant, can we add a fourth one or not? We're starting to say, can we change maintenance therapy and add potentially Ixazomib in the maintenance setting? Can we start using better combinations in the elderly population? Can we use uh, some of those antibodies in combination with proteasome inhibitors or immunomodulators? And all of those are ongoing right now. That's other than, of course, many other new agents that are being developed. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's a pretty exciting
1: time. There's a lot on the horizon, a lot the field moving forward very quickly. Very quickly. It's very exciting. Uh, Dr. Davids, I wanted to ask you about CLL and how we're finding so many new treatments in it. Why do you think that's the case for CLL but not some of the other blood cancers?
2: So, you know, I I think that. Part of this is sort of the investment that's been made over the years in studying CLL uh, is starting to pay off. Uh, typically, you know, it's it's a disease that's actually pretty easy to study in the laboratory. This is how I actually got interested in CLL myself: is that the samples are very av- available, the cells are circulating in the bloodstream, it's easy to collect them and study them in the lab, um, and a number of models have been developed over the years which have allowed us to test drugs in, in CLL. Um, this is using stroma, for example, uh, work that Dr. Gobriel has done as well has looked at that in myeloma, um, and it allows us to try to simulate how the drugs might work um, in patients. Uh, so it's been a fairly straightforward process to then take those drugs from the preclinical models mm-hmm. into the patients, and we've seen very nice results. You know, I'm certainly hopeful that this will be a model that can be applied with other malignancies. It's certainly a much more challenging thing in AML, for example, uh, where the therapies have not been as effective historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's, that's certainly a worthy goal to shoot for as well there.
1: Excellent. I also wanted to ask you another topic that came up quite frequently at ASH was venetoclax. And um, if you could tell us just what it is and what it does and kind of where the field is moving as we study this agent.
2: Sure. So uh, venetoclax, which was formerly called ABT199, Mm -hmm. uh, targets a protein called BCL2. Uh, BCL2 has a long and rich history um, at many institutions, but particularly also here at Dana-Farber. Stan Korsmeyer did a lot of the pioneering work to understand what BCL2 does in cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Tony LaTai kind of took, took the reins from there and actually helped figure out what the role of BCL2 is in CLL and found that actually BCL2 is a very important protein for protecting the CLL cells from dying. And a lot of brilliant scientists at AbbVie Pharmaceuticals came up with this drug, ABT199, now called venetoclax, which very selectively targets this BCL2 protein. And we discovered that CLL cells are exquisitely sensitive to this this drug. Um, There's something called tumor lysis syndrome, where tumor cells can break open very quickly. It can actually be a dangerous process for for patients. Uh, And we saw tumor lysis syndrome with venetoclax, which is not something we typically see in CLL, particularly with a novel therapy. Uh, So early on in the study, there was a lot of adjustment that needed to be made to try to make this a safe therapy for patients, and fortunately that was done. Uh, And we've played a leading role in those studies here at Dana-Farber, and we've actually helped to bring this now very much to the brink of FDA approval. One of the most exciting moments for me personally at ASH was that we had a New England Journal paper on venetoclax that was uh, published at the same time as the meeting, and that was announced uh, during one of the venetoclax presentations. Um, And it's nice to get that information out there to really share our our enthusiasm for the agent um, with the broader scientific community. So uh, venetoclax induces very deep, and, and it seems to be durable remissions, albeit with relatively short follow-up so far. Uh, but it's working very differently from ibrutinib and idelalisib, and I think that's one of the reasons why people are so excited about it. Because as we think about the future, I think like in myeloma, we're going to think about combination therapies. And rather than potentially combining drugs with the same mechanism, we think about combining drugs with very different mechanisms of action with different side effect profiles. And I think that's going to be a very promising approach for CLL treatment in the future.
1: It's fantastic. Um, another topic that was, that continues to build momentum and that was spoken of quite a bit at ASH and at some of the other medical conferences that we've been to is immunotherapy. I mean, it's a very hot topic. We hear about it in the news quite frequently. Um, so I was wondering if each of you could maybe give me your take on immunotherapy and how you see it moving the field of
3: treating blood cancers forward. Do you want to start with that? Sure, Dr. absolutely. Uh, and I think math has a lot of data with a lot of uh, exciting trials already. Uh, with immunotherapy but in general immunotherapy has shown very strong promise in solid tumors and we're now starting to see a lot of hematological malignancies benefiting from it Uh, i think hodgkin's lymphoma would be one of the first ones we can talk about but in general we know that cancer inhibits your immune system, and that's why they can, they're can they capable of growing very well. And now we have those immune checkpoint inhibitors, although there are so many other things that we can talk about, CAR-T therapy and other things, vaccines and so on, but just for the antibodies that are immune checkpoint inhibitors, we know that they sort of take away that so that now your immune system can recognize the cancer cells in general, and I'm sure Matt can talk about that in more details. Um, and some of those are being tested right now in multiple myeloma as well as, of course, many other cancers. In myeloma, there was a presentation in ASH that was very exciting because it's the first trial that shows us strong responses in the relapse setting. This was uh, one of the PDL1 inhibitors. So, PDL1 is expressed on the myeloma cells, and an antibody that inhibits it plus lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So again, lenalidomide is an immunomodulator and it activates the immune system. And that combination showed about 70% response rate, even in patients who had lenalidomide before. And that's the first step of us seeing promising results in immune checkpoint inhibitors in myeloma. I can tell you the excitement is there for so many trials, so many combinations ongoing now. Incredible. Dr. Davids?
2: Immunotherapy has been an interest of mine for a very long time. And, and you know a decade ago, it was it was somewhat maligned and it was kind of hit and miss. Some vaccines had interesting activity and some did not. And I think no one really knew where the field was going. And I think in the last few years, it's become pretty clear that at least this, this initial round of checkpoint blockade antibodies, as they're called, so nivolumab, ipilimumab, um, drugs like this are, are gonna be the, the way to sort of explore this initially, especially in solid tumors at first. Uh, I think it's been a little bit slow in hematological malignancies so far. And we're just starting to see you know the, the studies coming now in, in heme malignancies, in particular in Hodgkin lymphoma, as Dr. Gobriel mentioned. Uh, Philippe Armand gave a nice overview in one of the education sessions uh, from Dana-Farber of, of sort of where the landscape is of the PD-1 antibodies like nivolumab and certainly seeing very high response rates, even in patients who have been refractory to many other therapies. Uh, we presented data from one of our own studies of ipilimumab, which is one of the other uh, antibodies that's approved by the FDA already for melanoma. Uh, we decided to explore it in patients who had relapsed after bone marrow transplantation, and we saw some very interesting responses in that group. We worry about, in those patients, that by revving up the immune system, we can also rev up graft-versus-host disease, which can be a serious complication of transplant. But in fact, we haven't seen high levels of graft-versus-host disease, and we have seen some very dramatic responses, including in patients with acute leukemias who typically are quite refractory to many other therapies. Uh, So I, I think there's potential for the immune therapies in lots of different scenarios that maybe even the small molecules would not be as effective. Uh, so I think it really opens up the, the game for, for really being creative with how we treat these blood cancers.
3: Mm-hmm. And this was an ASH highlight uh, that Matt presented. Another ASH highlight that was very interesting is also CAR-T therapy in myeloma. Right. Yes, that was actually my next <laughs> question, yes, so let's just shift <laughs> so right uh, over to that. Absolutely. So again, CAR-T therapy, the first presentation was in New England Journal of Medicine of just a case report. And this was with the cz 19 CAR-T therapy showing that indeed, and this was uh, a, a collaboration with Ken Anderson, one of his patients actually. Um, And it showed that indeed, even if CD19 is not expressed on myeloma cells, this patient responded well. We now know that we can do car T therapy with other uh, potential targets. And now we're doing BCMA, we're doing also SLAMF7. And the data that was presented in ASH was for BCMA showing very strong responses. Again, very early, small number of patients, but the promise is there that we can start using car T therapy in myeloma.
2: Fantastic. And I might just take a little step back because CAR-T was sort of a new idea for me, so maybe just to explain a little bit about how it works because it's it's a little bit complicated and, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sort of a a basic level, you know, when I spoke about transplant, that's when you're getting cells from someone else, a a donor cells. And so the donor cells hopefully recognize the tumor cells and kill them off, but as I mentioned, they can also recognize the host or the normal cells and cause graft-versus-host disease. So one of the ideas with the, with the CAR T cells is to try to get around that problem by using the patient's own cells as the, as the way to recognize the tumor cells. So the way it works typically is that patients will come in, they'll undergo um, a phoresis procedure where some of their T cells are taken out. Um, and T cells are the key immune cells that can recognize tumors. Then the patients might get very mild chemotherapy. Um, and while that's happening, the T cells are being engineered so that they can then recognize tumor cells very specifically. So CD19 is a common target, um, works in CLL as well. And so those cells are kind of grown up a bit outside of the body, and then they're reinfused into the patient, and they can go in and seek and destroy. Um, one of the developers, Carl June, calls this the serial killers. <laughs> uh, and I think that's it's really true, because unlike antibodies or small molecules where you have to dose every day or every week, the T cells go into the body and they can stay there. And the group from University of Pennsylvania has shown that these T cells can persist for three, four years um, without the need for repeated dosing. Uh, and some of these patients, again, who have had you know, very refractory disease, have not been responding to any of the novel agents even, have had dramatic responses to CAR T cells. So again, it's a very different modality from the small molecules. It really complements that, that activity very nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a lot of excitement, particularly in CLL early on, with some very dramatic responses. As we've seen more data, um, certainly not all patients are having responses. And I think one of the keys with the CAR T cells moving forward is going to be figuring out why some patients respond so dramatically and other patients don't. Mm-hmm.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Gobriel, I thought we'd switch gears and I just wanted to briefly touch on your, re- not super new, but, but kind of new clinic, the uh, clinic, for Pre- clinic for Prevention of Progression of Blood Cancers. Um, so what that does is that clinic looks at fighting precancerous conditions before they actually develop into full-blown cancers. So can you tell us a little bit about what this clinic does and how it helps patients and ways that patients might be able to get involved?
3: Absolutely so we know that in all cancers especially for hematological cancers or blood cancers they start with a very early condition we call it a precursor condition so for multiple myeloma many patients in fact we think almost all of the patients will have a precursor condition called MGUS, monoclonal gamopsy of undetermined significance big long name but it means you have some of the cancer cells some of the changes that occur already but it hasn't gone to be a full blown cancer or a full blown myeloma. And then they progress to smoldering myeloma and then to the real myeloma. The same for CLL. You have an early condition called MBL and then it goes on to CLL. And all of the cancers are the same way. MDS, for example, you have an earlier condition that Dr. Ben Ebert here from the Farber, uh, as well as collaboration with the Broad, showed that many people, as we get older, we start having this early precursor condition called CHIP. And we started asking the question, well, if we know that we have those precursor conditions and we know that they will go on to develop the cancer, can we stop it early on? And it came from solid tumors. If you have a a woman who has a mammogram and she gets a ductal carcinoma inside to a small little lesion, we immediately say, let's remove it right now. We're not going to wait for you to have metastatic cancer, and then we treat you. Yet we see every day patients with MGUS or with MBL and we tell them, watch and wait, it's okay. You have to wait until you have lesions in your bones, until you have kidney damage, and then I'll treat you. And maybe in the old days when we didn't have good therapy, that was okay to happen. Uh, Now that we have so many new agents, now that we can understand better biologically and molecularly what causes progression, we could potentially think of preventing progression and potentially preventing those cancers from happening by early therapeutic intervention. And for us to do this, This was truly led by Dr. Soifer here at Dana-Farber with many others. It's a true collaboration between us all as blood cancer uh, team to create a new initiative, a whole clinic not to wait for patients to have the full-blown cancer, but to actually see them early, diagnose them early, understand at the lab level, at the molecular level, why someone will progress while the other person will never progress to the disease, and then develop active therapy for those patients that are not toxic therapy. We're not talking about chemotherapy for everyone. We're talking about specific patients who we know will actually progress in their lifetime in five years from now, in three years from now, and then treating them actively with therapeutic uh, drugs that are not toxic and potentially prevent myeloma from happening or CLL from happening. Incredible. Thank you. We're very excited about it. It's called yeah. CPOP, so you can look it up online. We also have a associated tissue banking uh, with it. It's called P-Crowd, so it's precursor crowdsourcing. And the whole idea is that patients don't have to come all the way to Dana-Farber. They can log on online and participate and in this part crowdsourcing uh, and give us samples and be part of that community. So we're very excited about that.
1: And we have information about that on our website, so we'll be sure to to put absolutely, out a link about absolutely. that. Incredible.
2: And, and I can just add that I think Please. this clinic has been great for my, my own patients um, on a fairly frequent basis. I see patients with this MBL, monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, and I recommend observation right now. Uh, and patients always ask me, well, what, what can I do? Um, and right now, we don't have great evidence for different interventions for those patients. So I tell them, well, what you can do is sign up for this study, uh, contribute a sample, and help us to learn more about the science of why some patients progress while other patients don't. And then hopefully we'll develop targeted in- interventions for patients who are at high risk, and then those patients will be in the study already and we will have access to those types of therapeutic interventions. So it's, I think it's really been a huge benefit for our patients here at Dan farber
3: And it actually gives us that, the power of patients and what they can do to make a difference and to change the the course of their disease. And I think P Crowd really helps with that, that we work with the patients to give us that advantage to understand better the disease. Excellent, excellent.
1: We did have a question come in. Dr. Davids, I think this is going to go to you. So I'm just going to read this. Um, It's about chronic lymphocytic leukemia and small cell lymphocytic leukemia. So CLL and SLL and Richter's transformation. Mm Um, to a different form of cancer, such as high-grade lymphoma, such as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So here's the actual question. Which CLL or SLL patients, in terms of genetic profile or prior treatment history, tend to be at higher risk for the transformation? And does, does this occur frequently in one or the other? So is it more likely to occur with the CLL or the SLL patient?
2: So I'll take that one right off the bat, because that's, that's easy. So okay. there's, there's no difference in the rates in CLL versus SLL, um, but let's take a step back and just talk briefly about what the Richter's transformation is, just for people mm-hmm. who aren't familiar with it. So um, you know, CLL is usually what we call an indolent or slow-moving type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma or leukemia. Uh, the distinction between the SLL and CLL is really about the amount of cells and where they are. So if the cells are mainly in the lymph nodes, it's more of a lymphoma or SLL. If they're mainly in the blood, they may still be in the lymph nodes. We call that CLL or leukemia. Um, And so, you know, the the Richter's can occur when this slow-moving indolent type of lymphoma converts into a much more aggressive type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is usually diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common type of aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, Interestingly, CLL can also transform into Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, but that's much more rare. So, you know, even though we have very much a, a lot of nice therapies for CLL, they're very effective. We have very poor therapies right now for Richter's transformation, unfortunately. We typically go back to using our standard chemotherapy, and it's hard. Often patients don't do well, and so there's a lot of interest in trying to develop better therapies for Richter's. Uh, And I think as we're doing that, we're also trying to figure out who's at the highest risk for developing Richter's. And there are a number of factors that have been described over the years. I think historically, it's typically the patients who've gone through multiple rounds of chemotherapy over the years and have had CLL for a long time. They tend to be at higher risk. And there's certain genetic markers also that predispose. And one in particular is a high-risk marker that we call deletion 17P or mutation of TP53, which is a protein. Those patients have a much higher risk of Richter's. There's a new gene that's been um, noted to be mutated recently in the last couple of years called NOTCH1 those patients also seem to be at higher risk for developing Richter's transformation. So we're able to sort of figure that out now. We can profile the patients and figure out who would be at the highest risk, but we can't prevent it, at least for now. Uh, And that's something that we're actively working on on trying to do.
1: Okay. And there's a second part to the question. Um, You may have answered it, but I'm going to read it just in case. This is from the same questionnaire. The question is, does the Brutinib or any of the other next-generation therapies appear to hold promise in non-Hodgkin lymphoma, such as the diffused large B-cell lymphoma?
2: So that's a great question, and I can kind of answer a couple different aspects great. of it. So, you know, the, the, the first part of it is, you know, one of the things that was noticed early on in the clinical trials of these new drugs like ibrutinib and venetoclax was that there was a lot of Richter's transformation going on in the patients on the trials. So initially, actually, people were concerned, are these new drugs somehow causing Richter's transformation? Uh, And, you know, really going back to what I said before, what was recognized was that the patients who came onto these initial trials, unfortunately, had been through many, many rounds of chemotherapy. They were enriched for these very high-risk markers. And so we think that, you know, certainly because we were seeing this across multiple new types of drugs with different mechanisms, that it wasn't one particular drug that was inducing Richter's. It was really patients who were, unfortunately, at high risk for Richter's who were developing it, probably because these drugs were helping them to live longer than they might have otherwise lived. So we don't think that the new drugs are causing Richter's. although there is still some controversy about that, and I think we need to continue to study it to make sure. Um, but you know, I think we've also seen some activity of the drugs against Richter's. So for example, with the Venetoclax drug, uh, early on in the study, uh, the company included a cohort of patients, so seven patients, small numbers, but four of the patients with Richter's, uh, four out of the seven, had a nice response. So there is a, at least a signal uh, that there may be some activity of the new drugs. It doesn't seem to be quite as potent as, as the activity against CLL. So I think the challenge is going to be to try to find new ways to combine the drugs creatively, um, and that will be informed by the science uh, to try to develop effective strategies for treating Richter's. But I think we have a long way to go there compared to CLL itself.
1: Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, so now let's kind of look ahead, uh, look to ASH next year or this year actually. Now that we're into twenty sixteen, um, what do you think? Just big broad overview. What do you think is going to be the hot topic at uh, this coming ASH for twenty sixteen, Doctor Gobriel?
3: So it's hard to predict. We have eleven more months to yeah. go, and a yeah. lot can happen in eleven yeah. months. But I think again, uh, combinations that are. Uh, targeted at the right population. I think right now in myeloma, we've done a huge advance uh, in treating our patients and giving them better remissions and longer survival, yet we haven't cured our patients. I think my hope is for this year, we have a better way of truly classifying our patients who are high risk, and defining better therapies for them because we're still losing the battle in those patients. So having better combinations of therapy, some of them could potentially be precision medicine based on mutations and based on translocations and specific subgroups of patients, 17p deletion and so on, and trying to define whether those patients will benefit from immunotherapy, from other targeted therapy that truly defines precision medicine for those patients. Uh, For the others, I think Achieving a better minimal residual disease. We're starting to now say there is a subgroup of patients that we can cure in myeloma And that's an exciting time to define who are those patients and what would the benefit be? And then I think in the future of course Treating smoldering myeloma so that we can prevent and organ damage we prevent uh, Kidney or bone lesions and so on and we can prolong remission and potentially prolong survival and cure some of our patients with myeloma. Excellent. Dr. David.
2: Yeah, so I think some some similar themes in CLL and maybe one, one other thing um, that I'll mention. So, you know, in CLL also, we've had several of these exciting new drugs come along, mainly as monotherapy in, in the trials, meaning one, one drug at a time. And I think the future is clearly also going to be in combinations with the new drugs. I think the ASH meeting will start to see some of those data. We're working on some of those studies ourselves here. Uh, I think, you know, we don't know right now whether it's better to combine these new drugs with each other or whether to combine them with chemotherapy or probably both strategies need to be explored. And so that's the type of study that we're doing, and hopefully we'll be presenting some of our own data and looking to see what our colleagues are doing around the world. Uh, I think, as I mentioned before, combining a drug like venetoclax with ibrutinib is one of the most exciting combinations, and we may start to see some data from that at at the ASH meeting. And I think part of the importance of this is that the current strategy with the monotherapy using one drug at a time has been with drugs like ibrutinib to just keep patients on them for life. Um, which may be okay if you're in your 80s, um, but if you're in your 40s or 50s, and we do have some younger patients with CLL, uh, the idea of being on a Brutinib for 40 or 50 years may not be that appealing. And so that's where the combinations uh, either with chemotherapy or with a novel agent are very appealing. Maybe you can just do a defined six-month course, maybe with a little maintenance period, uh, and then hopefully be cured, or if not cured, at least be in remission for many, many years. So I think that's going to be one exciting aspect of the ASH meeting in 2016, is to really start to see the combination data coming out in a, in a more mature format. I think the second thing that will be very exciting is to see more mature data on these second-generation molecules. In myeloma, they already have many proteasome inhibitors, so they've had second and third generation. They're very lucky. But in CLL, um, we just came along with these new drugs, BTK inhibitors. Um, and drug like ibrutinib, it's a very good drug, but it does have significant side effects uh, for some patients. Uh, and so there's a new drug that came along called ACP196, or a calibrutinib. Uh, which was presented at the ASH meeting uh, for the very first time this past year. And I think we'll start to see a lot more studies with this drug, um, which is a very selective BTK inhibitor. And it has fewer side effects, at least so far, um, compared to ibrutinib. Obviously, hard to compare across studies. So uh, the company is also doing a study directly comparing, uh, randomizing patients to get ibrutinib or calibrutinib. I doubt that we'll have data at the next ASH meeting on that study, but I think that type of head-to-head formal comparison is going to be very important to see if this new drug really is better tolerated uh, and hopefully equally efficacious, if not even more so than Ibrinib.
1: Fantastic. Thank, Thank you so good. much. It was such a pleasure to speak with both of you. This has been Dana-Farber's
0: Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Irene Gobriel and Dr. Matthew Davids of Dana-Farber's Hematologic Oncology Treatment Center. To download more episodes, and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.